Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Shall we agree that justice wants? I'm gonna change my life until it's just as tiny or important as you like. And in time, we won't even recall that we spoke. Words that turned out to be as big as smoke Like smoke disappears in the air There's always something smoldering somewhere I know it don't make a difference to you But oh, it sure made a difference to me You'll see me off in the distance, I hope At the other end Yes, well, today's show is very much about what uh, we see at the other end of the telescope. Not we so much as our guest, Adam Frank. Uh, Adam Frank is the Helen F. and Fred H. Gowan professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Rochester. He's the author of the new book, The Little Book of Aliens. I'm just going to say, also, welcome to day two of Astronauti Week. If you listened to the first show yesterday, that was Garrett Graff talking about UFOs and UAPs. This show is kind of the opposite of that in the sense that, you know, UFOs... Are, are almost always an N of one, as they say. UFOs are always, what was that? You, know, you try to figure that out. Uh, whereas what Adam Frank and his colleagues in the world of astrophysics are doing and astrobiology are doing is to take a systemic look uh, at what might be out there and how you'd even go about thinking about what you might find about what might be out there. But I should stop uh, talking and get Adam Frank to do the talking. Uh, first of all, before we even go into all that, I just want to salute you for the way this book is written. You write so conversationally. This is the highest praise I can give anybody. You write so conversationally and so accessibly that, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but I was able to follow 99% of this book and felt very engaged by it. So thank you for writing it that way. Oh, thank you, Colin, because that's really what I wanted. You know, in, in many ways, right, after 30 years of being, uh, you know, a, a astrophysicist and studying everything from, you know, stars to planets, I wanted people to have a fast, fun way to see how close we are to answering the question, are we alone? Not by looking in our own skies at blurry pictures of UFOs, but through, yeah, super powerful instruments like the James Del- the James Webb Space Telescope that we're, we're, we're almost there. Right. So let's talk about how almost there we are and how you guys are doing it. And we should first of all say that this is pretty recent um, that, you know, as we documented yesterday, people have been seeing things in the sky for a really long time. But in terms of a even mildly well-funded, organized effort to look for extraterrestrial life, it's still kind of in its infancy. But tell us more. Yeah, it is. And even in my career, so I'm 61 now, you know, I went to graduate school in the late 80s, early 90s. And when I went to graduate school in the, the, when I was in graduate school, there was no astrobiology. Like there literally was no well-funded, well-thought-of project 
for finding life in the universe. And most people, there was SETI, which was, you know, trying to look for uh, alien intelligence with radio telescopes. And there was solar system stuff. But both of those were seen as being marginal at best. And in the in the mere 30 or so years since I was in graduate school, the study of life in the universe has now, like NASA is all in. The next giant multi-zillion dollar telescope that NASA is going to build is called the Habitable Worlds Observatory. And that just says it all. Like this is the most important problem in astrophysics right they, now. They couldn't call it the Goldilocks Observatory? I mean... Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe later on. Yeah. There's always this first phase, and then yeah. they got to name it after yeah, somebody, the, right? Some that, yeah. famous scientist. Right, the Goldilocks. That'll yeah. be the nickname, because <laughs> uh, they're looking right. for a place just right, uh, if you didn't get that. But um, so, <laughs> and, and uh, there's another distinction worth making, and I just want to say in advance that um, Adam is going to use over the course of this show, some fairly pejorative language about microbes. And if you're a microbe and you are offended by, <laughs> by Adam's language, please take it up with him. It is certainly not our position, uh, you microbes. But there is sort of a distinction that you make between <laughs> between dumb life and smart life. And oddly <laughs> enough, the resources were going more into finding dumb life, partly because of what you refer to as the giggle factor. Please elaborate. Yeah. So again, when I was a graduate student, there was SETI, uh, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which dates back to 1960 or so. And, you know, I try and the, the first part of the book is really about this history because it's so important. The decade from 50, 1950s to 1950, 1960. So that first search where where Frank Drake took a radio telescope and pointed it at a couple stars and listened for like signals, messages, um, that began modern SETI. But what people don't understand is it was never very well funded, right? It was always marginal. There was a professor at the University of Washington where, where I worked, Woody Sullivan, who did it. And everybody loved Woody. But there was always this sense, just, and set, you know, everybody knew it, that it was like, oh, kind of out there. You had to have tenure, to do this. This was not funded. This was not uh, something that you get your degree in, most likely. Um, and so that search for smart life, intelligent life, was because of UFOs and because of bad science fiction movies, was was always seen as a little marginal, right? A little like, you'd, you know, if you said you were into it, somebody would raise their eyebrow. Maybe there'd be snickers. Um, and so what and the irony of that was that uh, in 1995, NASA found there was there was some evidence that was found that may have pointed to Mars having life. It was actually a, a, a meteorite that they found in Antarctica that turned out to be from Mars. And there was some ind indication that it might have life. And so NASA went all in on looking for microbes or at least starting that search on Mars. So microbes became very well funded, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and then even as we started to discover, so this is one of the other big revolutions that happened was in 1995, we also discovered our first planet orbiting another star, an exoplanet. And that started also NASA funding astrobiology in a big way, because now we knew exactly where to look for life. But there still, we were looking for microbial or biospheres. Nobody, NASA was really explicit about not searching, not funding anybody to search for smart life. So dumb life, and again, I apologize to all those microbes out there, because God knows they can do amazing things like fermentation. But dumb life got all the funding. And until the grant that I'm part of, I am, I'm the principal investigator on a NASA grant to look at the idea of intelligent life on planets searching for it we're the first grant we were the first grant 
you know, ever in some sense uh, to look for, or certainly in a long time, to look for smart life. So there's really been most of the effort here in astrobiology has been looking for kind of microbial life or biospheres, you know, things that didn't produce civilizations. I do want to say that in Friday's show of Astronauty Week with Jamie Green, I think we are going to play the clip of Bill Clinton when he's kind of getting out over his skis. Oh, it could, could be some life. <laughs> I think maybe we'll find some life on Mars. It looks, it looks pretty good to me. Um, Very so, nice. I like the impression. Very good. <laughs> so um, so let's talk about one, one of the terms that I learned in this book is the term technosignatures. And this is really fascinating. So uh, when we're if we're going to look for something approximating a civilization or something that some form of life uh, on another planet that has some kind of activity, you start looking for certain things that one might think would be a basic thing that a civilization would be doing. We, we're going to talk about biosignatures later, but technosignature is really interesting. Maybe explain this idea and give a couple of examples. Yeah, and this is actually plays back to the history. So I think the good way to frame this is to think about what traditionally we're doing, right? So when Frank Drake did that first experiment. And, you know, it's interesting to say that that was the first time anybody could actually do an experiment looking for life, whether it was dumb life or smart life. Frank Drake in 1960 was the first real astrobiology experiment. Um, but he was looking for, because of the nature, you know, he had a radio telescope and the way that radio waves you know, would be emitted, he really needed somebody sending him a signal, right? He needed like somebody to have set up a beacon, like a lighthouse that was pumping energy in just one direction, you know, beamed at us saying like, hi, we're here, you know, we don't want to eat you. Um, so that was the, that, and that, so that is a techno signature. That would be a signature of a technological civilization. But the problem with that was always, it required the alien civilization to want to do that, right? I mean, maybe they, maybe civilizations don't want to announce their presence for lots of different reasons. Yeah. In the modern era. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, one of the reasons that you, that has been posited is maybe we're a zoo. Maybe they just know about us, but we're like a wildlife preserve and they just want to watch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there's there's been this whole, that whole idea that I'm trying to figure out what the aliens want to do or don't want to do has always plagued SETI. Um, you know, it's how are we supposed to figure out what an alien mind is like, right? So that is a one of the issues with what I would call classic SETI. But now, once we just started discovering exoplanets, we could give up that idea. We don't need them to want to send a message to us. Now, because we know where the planets are, you know, we know where these exoplanets are. We know which ones are in the Goldilocks zone, as you were saying, the the the, the band of orbits where you could have liquid water on the surface and hence life. We know exactly where to look. So all we really have to do now with our super powerful uh, telescopes like the James Webb is instead of looking for signals, purposeful signals, we can just look for for signatures of them going about their business of civilizationing. Right. So we can look for things like city lights. Uh, if they are using artificial illumination in a big way, the, the lights they use may have a spectral imprint, meaning there's something there. The light that that is being cast out, some of it will change the light that gets to us. And all we have to do is use the James Webb Space Telescope, look at that exoplanet and, and take the light from it and kind of break it up and analyze it. And we may see the the signature or the fingerprint of the city lights. We could see uh, signatures or fingerprints of industrial chemicals like uh, chlorofluorocarbons, the stuff that got us into trouble with um, 
uh, you know, the cl- uh, burning up the ozone layer. Yeah, that's really if interesting. They re- I just want to pause you there because this is really interesting. Because, yeah, first of all, yes, we don't like chlorofluorocarbons. But imagine that you had a different kind of planet and you kind of wanted, you, you were all going, you know what would be great if we had a greenhouse here? If we only had a greenhouse. <laughs> well, that's the greenhouse effect. It's cl- you might want to make CFCs uh, if you had a different kind of planet. But one of the really interesting things that you participated in was kind of a modeling, a what if... Uh, what if there were a planet with CFCs on it that was 10 light years away? Take the ball and run with that. Explain what you did, because this is really interesting. Yeah, so this was one of the first projects our NASA group did. Um, and so this project was led by Jake, Jason Hawk Mizra and uh, Ravi Kaporapu. And what they did was is they took climate models. They took, you know, they took a, 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 a model, a mathematical model for a planet like Earth or somewhat like Earth, and they pumped it full of CFCs. They put, they did some models that had the same level of chlorofluorocarbons that we have, and then two times and then 10 times. Uh, and then they saw how the climate changed because chlorofluorocarbons are great greenhouse gases. If you wanted Mars, if you wanted to turn Mars into a habitable world, you'd have to warm it up and you'd pump the planet full of CFCs. So then what they did is they then took that planet and they looked at it, they they modeled, like they made a mathematical model of looking at it with something like the James Webb Space Telescope. And amazingly, what we found is that even for Earth levels of CFCs, the same levels that we have in our atmosphere, with with about 100 or 200 hours of, of using the James Webb Space Telescope, you could tell there were CFCs in this alien atmosphere. Right. So even so a planet that was I think we did 40 light years away, if the planet was 40 light years away, we could look at that planet with a telescope we have now and find evidence of an industrial civilization on that planet. And that was a real milestone because for the first time we were showing that with telescopes we have now, we can find evidence of a civilization at our level. So that was it. Like we now actually have the I don't doesn't mean they're out there, but we have the capacities to find them if they are. You know, all of this, I think, has to be tempered a little bit by, I think about it, I think of Wittgenstein, who said, if a lion could speak, we would not understand it. Uh, and and there may be planets and, and there may be life forms that are so, so don't conform to our expectations that, that a lot of this stuff might have to go out the window, right? I mean, there could be just kinds of life that don't involve water or DNA or whatever. I mean, we have to start somewhere, so we have to have some kind of a uh, benchmark, but those benchmarks might conceivably be wrong, be wrong. Well, this is that you're absolutely right, and this is the really exciting thing about where the field is now, right? Mm-hmm. Because what we're because finally there's funding for astrobiology, people are finally getting the chance to think about this problem systematically. And so of course the first thing you do is you say like, okay, let's use the life we have and start thinking about how we might find that from a distance. But now we're past that. And now people are thinking about what we call agnostic technosignatures or biosignatures, which means looking for ways that any kind of life, right? Any reasonable definition of life, what what kind of imprints, what would it do to its planet that would leave imprints, regardless of whether it's carbon-based or silicon-based or um uh you know or argon-based. Well, so what's really cool is we're beginning down going down this road to asking a much more general kind of question. What you might think of it is we're we're beginning to understand how to think about life as we don't know it. And you know, that's the beauty of science, right? Is that you know, you answer the easy questions first and then you branch, you start, you know, heading into the uncharted territory. 
The other thing about these exoplanets, I don't know, what do we have, like 4,000 or so of them discovered? 5,500, 5, yeah, who's, crazy. Who's counting? But um, <laughs> but it's like the writer's room at Star Trek or something. There are planets that are might be made of diamond, you write, worlds that might be made all ocean, worlds that might be made all ice. Um, the more we discover about exoplanets, it turns out there's a lot of ways to be a planet too, right? Ways that we didn't even think about. So here, I love this fact that the most common kind of planet that we have found in the universe is the one, the kind that we don't have in our solar system. <laughs> so in our solar system, you know, you learned this when you were in like, you know, grade school, right? In your earth science section in fifth grade, there's like the four terrestrial planets packed very neatly near the sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. And then you get the asteroid belt. And then out further on is the land of the giants, right? Jupiter, Saturn, big planets with lots of space between them. That, and so, and, and our solar system, the there's earth, which is the biggest terrestrial planet. And then there's uh, Uranus, don't laugh, uh, which is the uh, the smallest um, uh, 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 gas giant. It's really a nice giant. But there's nothing in between. There's no planet between one Earth mass and say around 14 or so Earth masses, which is what Uranus and Neptune are around there. Um, in fact, the most common kind of planet is a planet in the middle there. And we call those super Earths. And we don't know what they're like. We know we've discovered lots of them, but we don't know whether they're like more like, are they more like Uranus and Neptune or are they more like the Earth? And so it's so cool that like one of the first things we tripped on when we started finding planets was that our we're weirdos. Our solar system is the weirdo. Um, we're not normal at all. <laughs> all right. So we're going to take a little break here. We're going to have more of Adam Frank. The book is The Little Book of Aliens. I do want to say this is one of those books, you know, you're reading a book and you see something interesting, so you dog-ear the page. My, my The entire book is just dog-eared pages now. I don't think I have like five non-dog-eared pages. Uh, all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll take a little break. We'll come back with more of Adam after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. So we're back with Adam Frank, the Helen F. and Fred H. Gowan Professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Rochester and the author of the new book, The Little Book of Aliens. Um, 
couple of things here. One thing we should say is that there's two ways to approach this question. One of them is the way that you're doing it, setting up these models or just searching. And, and, And one point that you make in the book is people might think, well, haven't you been really looking for a long time? Haven't you pretty much looked at the whole freaking sky and you haven't found anything? That is anything but the truth, Adam. Yeah, that so there's this idea somebody wrote about the great silence. And you get this, you actually see this sometimes people using this argument, you know, for religion or something that you know how why God it's weird how this gets used, but people think that like every night, you know, we astronomers turn our telescopes towards the sky and search for aliens. And the sad, sad truth is that that's never happened because there was no money to do that. So if there was a, a very lovely study that was done a few years ago where they counted up all the SETI searches that had ever been done. And, you know, the metaphor is if like the night sky is the ocean and we're looking for, you know, fish in the ocean, i.e. aliens in space, how much of the ocean have we looked for so far? And it turns out it was a hot tub, right? (laughs) The entire, the amount of sky that we have searched equals like a hot tub's worth of the ocean. So, you know, if you looked at a hot, if you drew up a hot tub's worth of ocean and didn't find any fish in it, you're not going to be like, well, that's it. There's no fish in the ocean. So it's just, you know, the the sky is unsearched, but now finally we're starting. And that's the exciting thing. That's what people, I really want them to understand. Like the game is on, right? Suit up. We're putting on, you know, we're pushing the boats into the water and and this voyage is beginning. Now, there's another way that people talk about going about this, and that is making us easier to find. You know, you can put stuff in the sky. You can send out some Chuck Berry and some Brandon Bird concerto <laughs> and some pictures of the Kardashians, whatever we think people would, you know, other beings would be interested in. And, and so, not the Kardashians. Not the Kardashians. All right. So um, maybe the Kardashians, though. Uh, but Ooh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so talk a little bit about that. I mean, how how does that fit in, or is it just of negligible interest, the idea of making ourselves easier to find. Yeah, so that um, that is called uh, in the literature METI, messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, and it's like yeah, sending out some kind of signal. Particularly, what a few people have done is they've literally taken radio telescopes and beamed a powerful signal to some uh, further, you know, to some distant uh, star or star cluster. And I don't think that's a good idea. There's a lot of people. I'm in the camp that's like, don't do that, or at least. Don't do it by yourself. Like, you know, this is the kind of thing that you might want to have all of humanity making a decision on because it's easy to sort of get into this sort of thing, Star Trek thing of like, oh, alien species, they're going to be, if they're super advanced, they're going to be super peaceful and they're going to wear togas, you know, and the whole thing. But we don't know, right? And so it really, I think some caution is required in terms of like beaming out our presence and letting everybody know that we're tasty. Right. So, you know, so there is really a debate in the community about whether or not Medi doing Medi is appropriate, that before you do that, maybe there should be some kind of discussion about this. Right. Group discussion. I can tell you that Lily Tyson, the producer that you've been dealing with with our show, is a no vote. She's in the Hawking camp. She's don't (laughs) don't send that stuff out there. I I, my whole idea is, you know, those ring doorbells, you know, where you you find out that a bear has been taking your Amazon packages or something like that. (laughs) It's just a lot of those out there. And then just see who rings it. Um, So. I think it's also important to talk a little bit about scientific methods, like what constitutes an evaluation. And I th- I thought, since it's in the book, and since we actually 
uh, interviewed Avi Loeb way back when at the time. This was kind of a, an exciting thing. There was an object called, I hope I'm saying this right, Umuamua, uh, passing, well done. passing not too far <laughs> from us. So take first of all, quickly explain what that is, and then talk about how you apply a scientific method to trying to figure out what that is or what it might be. Yeah, so Oumuamua was super exciting because it was the first interstellar object ever seen passing through the solar system. I mean, people expected this for a long time, but we just didn't have the uh, instruments that could catch one. So this was an object uh, that was tumbling, you know, uh, through the solar system. We, we could tell because it was moving so fast that we knew it was just going to go right through the solar system. And people did a bunch of observations of it while it was going by. And there were some peculiarities about it. I mean, we, everybody thought it would probably be like a chunk of a comet, the you know, the, the inner part of a comet. And it didn't quite fit that. For example, it was moving in a way that was Im implied maybe there was more than gravity going on. Um, and also its shape, it seemed to be long and narrow rather than kind of like rocky and, and, and uh, circular. Um, and Avi Loeb in particular sort of, he wrote a paper where he said, well, okay, you know, here's what it might be. But also it might be a, a, a technological artifact, which is a, definitely, you know, that's something you do want to consider. Um, but then what happened was, you know, people pushed back on that idea as they should. And Avi kind of, you know, really, you know, you know, uh, lot, did a lockjaw thing and wasn't really willing to kind of debate it. He was certain about it. And then the problem is it left, right? It left the solar system. We can't make any more observations about it. And I think the reason the critique that people had with Avi was that he was kind of he was going beyond what the evidence can support. Mm -hmm. So the thing and this is this is relevant to UFOs as well is that scientists people need to understand we are very mean to each other right we are we are we have brutal standards that link a a piece of evidence you found something to some claim and the more extraordinary the claim is about that evidence the more nasty we're going to be to each other so if you want to claim that you think this thing that passed through the solar system is not a natural object like the kind we've seen but is extraterrestrial your evidence has to be, you know, six ways to Friday has to be locked down tight. And this is the same problem with UFOs. If you're going to claim you saw something in the atmosphere that was not of human origin, it can't be a blurry photograph, right? It can't be just personal testimony. Um, and people may be like, well, oh, you scientists are closed-minded. Look, this is why cell phones work. It's only because we're so mean to each other and we have those kinds of standards of evidence that the miracles of modern technology, you know, work that your, you know, your your aunt who just got that hip replacement surgery didn't die, right? So, so the problem with Amuamua was there just wasn't the kind of evidence you need to make that claim, and and Avi Loeb kind of still was bearing down on that, and most people felt he was just, you know, kind of he was he was just he was off the reservation, so to speak, in terms of those claims. Right. So um, a listener emailed this question, and it really is great. It kind of is a lot about how the book ends. Uh, he writes, Michael writes, when we talk about exploring life on other planets, there's one question seldom asked. What would we do if we found it? And he goes on. He's got some examples. But I think it is a really good question. Definitely rubber gloves. I would wear those probably in N95. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, yeah. like there must be protocols for what happens if you guys hit the jackpot and find something. It's obviously going to be some distance from where we are right now unless it's coming close to us. But what happens then? Right. So, well, so there's, there's I mean, it depends on what you find, right? Yeah. Finding a microbe on Mars 
and especially if it like it was part of a return sample or if it was on earth yeah there's all different kinds of you know then there's safety protocols but imagine actually we don't find direct evidence imagine if we find like through the james webb space telescope we find a biosignature that makes it very clear that this planet has a biosphere that there's you know, that life is so rich and abundant on this world that it has changed the 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 nature of the atmosphere, right? So imagine a, a you know, an alien biosphere, alien forests, alien plains, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, a alien oceans teeming with plankton. What would happen then, right? And I think sometimes in that case, people will be like, oh, it's not going to matter. You know, it'll be news for five minutes. But I really disagree. I, as I, you know, as you said, I, I talk about this a lot in the book because I wanted people to understand that, you know, this is the oldest question human beings have ever asked. It's 2,500 years old. You can see the Greeks beating each other up, uh, you know, in their writing over whether Earth is special or not. So if we were to answer this question positively, even for non intelligent life, it would rewire how we understand ourselves. And the reason for that is, is pretty simple. Life is unlike any other physical system we understand, right? So, you know, uh, we ha you got um, mountains and you got planets and comets. They're all very interesting, but only life creates, only life innovates, right? You know, if you give me a star, I can pretty much tell you, you know, if you give me a star at the beginning of its life, I can tell you everything that's going to happen to that star for the rest of its its future, billions of years into the future, pretty much. If you give me a cell and ask me what's going to evolve from that in billions of years, I have billions of years. I have no idea. Like, you know, that you could end up with a giant rabbit that punches you in the face, right? A kangaroo, as I talk about in the book. Only life could invent a kangaroo. So right as of right now, we may be an accident. We may be the only place in the entire universe where this weird thing happened where a bunch of chemicals got together and started this innovation process and if we find one example of life anywhere else well then it means there's lots of life and that makes us part of a community a cosmic community of life and because of its innovative capacities who knows where it goes right all bets are off life invents how far does it invent how much can it do who knows and i think that's really the the even one example would be enough to really change our understanding of ourselves and our place in the universe. Right. I, I'm so glad you said that one example thing because I, I, it's in the book and I think it's a really important thing, which is that we're an N of one right now. An N of right. two would be a really, really big difference, right? It would mean this isn't this completely weird, unrepeatable thing. It would mean a lot to have even one more example. Yeah. Once you get to N equals two, then it's sort of like, okay, it's, if you get to N equals two, you know, there's any n is large, right? You get once you get to n equals two, you can then sort of work out the you know the statistics or the the infer arguments of inference that there's a lot, there's a lot of life out there. We're not a singular accident, you know. And I like to point out, you know, there was there's this thing called the Copernican Revolution, right? Where like in 1400, everybody went to bed, intelligent people went to bed, thinking like, oh, you know, the sun, the sun just went down, right? Because the sun goes around the Earth. The Earth is the center of the universe. 200 years later, intelligent people said, oh, no, it wasn't the sun that went down. It was the horizon that came up because the Earth is spinning and it goes around the sun. And that Copernican revolution, because it was Copernicus who said the uh, the sun was the center of the solar system, that wasn't just an astronomical idea, right? Nothing, I mean, nothing changed, but that it was it was an astronomical idea that became part of the the Renaissance became part of the Enlightenment, became part of the the, um, the Protestant Reformation. 
the idea reshaped how human beings thought of themselves and all of the political and economic, you know, revolutions that happened after that, you know, the Copernican revolution was in there. So finding, I think, finding life, even one example of, um, of life would be Copernicus times a thousand. And of course, if we found a civilization, woo, you know, then it's, then we're totally in new territory. Adam Frank, there's so much more I want to talk about you from uh, you from this book. Both Lily Tyson and I just uh, love this book so much. The Little Book right. of Aliens of, with Adam Frank. Uh, we're going to have to take a break now. Our final se- segment, there's some guy named Neil deGrasse Tyson or something. I'm not sure. He's <laughs> apparently like the mayor of outer space. Uh, anyway, uh, he's going to come on. Adam, you're so great. This is your second visit. I can't wait for your third. Uh, so the next time your spaceship's in our neighborhood, just, you know, sit right down uh, and right. We'll, have, we'll have another Ring the bell. Ring the, the nest. <laughs> do do the, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do that thing. All right. We'll be back after this. The technical producer of today's show is Cat Pastor. Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, and she produced this particular episode, part of our ongoing Astronauty Week coverage. Joining us now is Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist, author, science communicator, and generally referred to by a name for him I just made up, which is The Mayor of Outer Space. Uh, his newest book is To Infinity and Beyond, A Journey of Cosmic Discovery. Uh, he will be appearing at the Foxwoods Resort and Casino. If you're listening live today. It's Friday of this week, December 1st at 8 p.m. He will be making a presentation called Delusions of Space Enthusiasts. In honor of his visits, uh, Foxwoods is going to post on all of its gaming tables and and slot machines the odds of encountering extraterrestrial life as opposed to the odds of winning at one of those games. Uh, So you'll know. You'll know everything you need to know. Neil deGrasse Tyson, so exciting to have you here on the show. I got to say, I love that mayor of outer space title. Yeah. No, feel feel free. (laughs) That's going to grow on me, I think. What I like about mayor is that it's the highest ranking person elected official who has a direct influence on your quality of life, but they're not so important that anyone wants to kill them, right? So it's like this perfect placement between, you know, dog catcher and president where they can still do something for you. And plus you get to go to a lot of ribbon cuttings and other galaxies and stuff yeah, like that. It's, yeah. it's going to be the top hat. Yeah, you're the top hat. You're going to love this. All right. So joking about Foxwoods aside, um, you know, one of the things that will no doubt come up in your talk, delusions of space enthusiasts, is this whole question. It's the Enrico Fermi question. Where is everybody? So I know you've answered this question a hundred times in a hundred different ways, but what's your thinking about that question right now? I've answered that question a billion times yes. in a billion different ways. <laughs> so I, if this is your Astro Week, you're probably gathering a lot of different perspectives on this. So you probably don't even need my perspective. I have plenty of good colleagues accessible to you. But I can tell you uh, my favorite response to the Fermi paradox, for those who don't know, Enrico Fermi, an Italian-American physicist working in the United States, posed a question, if there's alien life anywhere maybe it is populated everywhere you can be in the galaxy. And if that's the case, we should have encountered them by now. And what people miss in that calculation is that you can actually do that calculation. You can say, well, suppose they had spaceship and they managed to go maybe 10% the speed of light. Don't give them the speed of light. Maybe that's not possible. Then how long would it take to get to the nearest stars? It would take like, you know, 
uh, hundreds of years, uh, thousands of years to settle. And then they would build spaceships to visit two more stars, two more planets, and then two more planets. And then you double this up. You can populate every known or unknown planet in the galaxy over several hundred million years. And that's small compared to the lifetime of the galaxy. So that's the actual numerical comparison that was made. You can run these numbers yourself. And it turns out about right. If every civilization creates two new explorer craft, and so then they discover two new planets, okay? And then so it's one to two to four to eight to 16. You get to the whole galaxy pretty quickly. My favorite explanation for why they haven't come is, what does it take to want to do that in the first place? <laughs> oh my gosh, you got to say, I want planets, okay? <laughs> and so you go out, and then if, if everybody's doing this, it's going to happen where I want the same planet you want. And so what happens? We fight over it. And you reach a point where the entire system implodes under its own greed. And we kind of have already seen that happen with European colonization of the world. It, you know, be Spain, Portugal, England, France, everybody's trying to carve up all these other places on Earth. And eventually they conflict with each other and then the whole system implodes. So that's why I don't think the aliens have visited. Or maybe why we hope. Uh, I oh, mean, <laughs> oh, I hope that's why they haven't visited. <laughs> because if it follows that pattern, the other thing they'll do is they'll give us the equivalent of syphilis and smallpox, and we'll all die of diseases we don't know <laughs> yeah. how to treat. Actually, got to get the syphilis vector right. It was Columbus that took syphilis back to the new world, oh, okay. not vice versa. That that gets omitted because yeah. everybody hates Chris lately. But <laughs> That's right. It's so easy, the... so easy to blame him for syphilis, too. Why not? Yeah. Um... <laughs> just so you know, that's all. So the just... first cases of syphilis were 1492 and 1493 in Europe. Yeah. So just to stay with this question for a moment, because this is something that only you are qualified to discuss with us, is why your favorite depiction of an extraterrestrial in cinema is the blob. Oh, thanks. You, you, you're doing your homework. Oh, you know, we've, <laughs> we've had private detectives following you for about two weeks. I, I love me some blog because the blog, 1958, Steve McQueen, one of his earliest films, this was an alien that arrived by some asteroid or something. I think there was an early scene where you see something hitting Earth. And what, it's, what does it look like? A blob. Pure and simple. And many people remember it as this red blob. Well, it didn't start out red. It started out transparent. And then after it blobbed its first victim, then it became red from the blood of its first victim. It was red for the whole rest of the movie. It it could move through grates, you know, and it invaded a, a cinema and it, and it went through the air ducts and it can ooze under the door and around uh, the cracks of windows. Oh my gosh, best alien ever. You know why? Because it didn't look like an actor in an alien suit. <laughs> just, just, just think about Oh, my God, look at all the variation of life on Earth with whom we have DNA in common. And practically every Hollywood alien looks more human than other life forms look compared to us yeah. on the same planet. So, you know, they have two eyes, a head, a nose, a mouth, ears, neck, shoulders, elbows, <laughs> knees. They walk. What? 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 Oak, do oak trees have this? Do, do lobsters have necks? Do you know? Look at all the other life forms. So it shows a deep inability of Hollywood to imagine. Actually, later this week we're going to be talking to the actor Doug Jones, who's actually the guy in a lot of those those suits oh. with those bipedal suits and <laughs> okay. stuff like that. Um, okay, no, I mean, you know, they, they got to earn a, a living. The right. actors, okay. I don't want to take it away from them, but 
just come on now. Let's be a little more imaginative. Oh, they'll give him three eyes instead of two or yeah. four fingers instead. You know, I, I, that's not imaginative enough. We have, what is it, 20, 30, 40% identical DNA to a banana? How about aliens that look like bananas? That would be funny. <laughs> right. Now, I think that should come up in auditions, casting auditions. They could say, could you play a banana-lobster oak tree hybrid kind of thing? Give us that. Worm. Just, yeah. Just jellyfish. Give yeah. us a few lines. Just throw it away. Um, let's talk about what we can see. And so I'm 69 years old. So when I was growing up, it was this, there was sort of the solar system. And in terms of other planets, it was like, ah, who knew? Maybe there's other planets. The, the James Webb Space Telescope not only can find exoplanets, but as I understand it, it can even tell us things at times, make, you know, more than intelligent guesses about the atmosphere of certain exoplanets. Can you oh, say yeah, a little so bit more about that? that. Yeah. It's an excellent question. It's not that James Webb did that first. It just does it better than any previous attempt. Mm. So, uh, yes, when you were growing up and when I was growing up, we're not that different in age. Mm -hmm. uh, there were the nine planets. Okay, <laughs> And then I was an accessory in the demotion of Pluto. So now we've got mm. eight planets. I didn't I didn't. I'm an accessory. So I don't want full blame for that. <laughs> I'll accept. Yeah. I did drive the getaway car for <laughs> sure. In New York uh, in 2000, we our new exhibit it left Pluto out of the planet count, and we got pilloried by the New York Times. And I've filed cabinets of hate mail from third graders. It's in, in response <laughs> to that. But anyhow, so uh, now since 1995, the catalog of exoplanets has. In 1995, we discovered the first, and now there's more than 6,000. And so anyone born from 1995 onward, I hereby knight you Generation X the planet, okay? <laughs> because you, you have only known life uh, with the knowledge that planets exist outside of our own solar system. So the way this works is uh, we discovered very many creative, inventive ways that we deduce and discover the existence of planets around stars. One of them is what's called a transit method, where if you see a star system edge on, then the planet will pass exactly between you and the host star. It's an the eclipse, basically. It's an eclipse. It, uh, it's an eclipse. Yeah. So, so it's not a total eclipse because the planet's much smaller than the star. But you see the light of the star dim by just a little bit and then come back up. And if that repeats and you get good data, you can deduce the existence of a, a planet, its size, its orbit, its temperature, and a lot. Now, it turns out for that class of exoplanet, light from the star passes through the atmosphere of the planet before it reaches us here on Earth. And the chemistry of the atmosphere leaves its own fingerprint in the light of the star. So first you get the spectrum of the star itself. Then you get the spectrum of the light passing through the atmosphere. And the difference between those two is the chemical ingredients of that atmosphere. And if you find oxygen or methane, there, there's what we call biomarkers, which is evidence that there's likely life thriving on the surface. On Earth, our atmosphere is one-fifth oxygen. If you took life away, photosynthesizing life away tomorrow, that oxygen would slowly drop to zero because something has to keep making it. You know why? Because oxygen is highly reactive and it wants to bind and make molecules with other stuff. So something has to keep generating it. If you find oxygen on a planet, oh my gosh, it's not just the random ingredients that you might find on planets. Something is actively putting it there. So we have a long list of biomarkers and the James Webb Space Telescope 
has the optical precision to be able to make those kinds of measurements like nobody else has. And if you find methane, you know there's flatulence, which is a exactly. sign, sign of life right there. <laughs> uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the mayor of outer space, is also an astrophysicist, author, and science communicator. His new book is To Infinity and Beyond, A Journey of Cosmic Discovery. Also look for him at Foxwoods on Friday, December 1st, where he'll be presenting delusions of space enthusiasts. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Shining star for you to see what your life can truly be. Shining star for you to see what your life can truly be.